Hello, and welcome to the Modern Retail Podcast. I'm Gabriela Barco, reporter of Modern Retail. This episode is part of our ongoing mini-series called Chain Reaction, where we chat with brand founders about their supply chain solutions. Today, I'm chatting with Andy Krantz, co-founder and CEO of travel brand Parabell. Hi, Andy. Welcome to the Modern Retail Podcast. Hi, Gabby. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. So today we're going to be talking about a pretty specific part of your supply chain that you've really overhauled or are working on um, doing, which is basically it comes down to nesting your luggage spe- uh, line specifically so that you can, um, you know, save money on the cargo shipments coming into the U.S. But to do that, there are a lot of different steps and components that go into it. So before we get into that, I do want to get a little bit of background on the brand, on Paravel, on yourself um, before we get into your supply chain. My co-founder and I launched Paravel in late 2016. We'd spent about a year and a half in development prior to that. We brought Paravel to market after seeing a, a real white space within the travel goods uh, and accessories uh, industry. There really wasn't product that we felt like addressed the day-to-day movements of how we were going about our our uh, travel from a mobility standpoint, but also really held up in an airport environment. Uh, and there was additionally a real lack of, of strong branded consideration and an emphasis on heavy synthetic materials and road warrior performance, sort of this hangover of the corporate mail traveler uh, of the 70s and 80s. So for us, when when we launched the brand, we launched with natural materials. We were using a cotton canvas. It was really important for us to demonstrate that you could have these products that looked almost you know white in appearance and stark contrast to the black bags of all the um, typical incumbents in the space and still have it be uh, and a product that would hold up and stand the test of time um, with a really strong emphasis on quality and and on price point bringing value. Um, over time, we were able to continue to push that mandate forward as it pertains to material usage and overarchingly our, our stance on um, sustainability. So as we evolved and, and gained access to new areas in, in material research, new aspects of, of supply chain, we were able to really make substantial investments, tear everything down and build it back up to where we were using, you know, rather than just using natural materials, we were using recycled materials. We were, you know, weaving our own fabrics. Um, and in 2019, we had a wholesale relaunch of several of our most popular lines into um, these fabrications that were made out of 100% recycled post-consumer water bottles. Uh, at this, to date, we've recycled, upcycled more than three and a half million of those bottles into our products. Uh, and then we, at the end of 2019, we launched the world's first 100% carbon neutral uh, luggage, um, which we call the Aviator. And that collection has been uh, really exciting for us. It took a tremendous amount of engineering and, and development in order to ensure that uh, recycled polycarbonate uh, and, and our other recycled elements within that within that suitcase could really stand up to the harsh conditions that travel uh, exposes um, product to, especially in, in the luggage space. Uh, and so that for us was a, a major advancement. And now we're continuing on that journey and, and really looking across 
a whole host of different uh, aspects of from material science to our operating activities to uh, you know, carbon offsetting to you know life cycle analyses and and circularity initiatives in order to push uh, ourselves to be you know beyond we always stated that we wanted to be the first 100% sustainable travel brand and at this point for us we really think it's about going past that and and moving into being a regenerative brand so we it's not enough just to mitigate the impact of of our business on the earth we think we really would like to have a positive impact on the earth at the end of the day and that said that's actually a great time to get into you know what were some of the production steps or practices that you were taking up until obviously you know some of the uh, disruptions you had during the pandemic. So, you know, take us through the from the founding phase or the pre-launch phase uh, all the way to, I guess, early 2020. Um, and then we'll get into the changes later. Sure. So initially we did all of our development work uh, in Italy and we worked with a couple of factories, um, one outside of Florence, one outside of Milan in particular, to leverage the expertise that these, you know, family owned historical bench made craftsmen had. So it was a very collaborative process in a way that is not common in, in, you know, run rate manufacturing and product development. There were elements that we would send over that were prescriptive that then in conjunction with, with, uh, the craftsmen in, in Italy, we would actually receive back different changes and there were different reasons for it, um, explained to us by, by our, uh, collaborators and our factories there, which were extremely useful for us and, and really anchoring by co-founder and I in a very, uh, granular understanding of what it takes to manufacture product, where you can, um, where you need to invest substantially and where you're adding unnecessary cost and just increasing the price to your end consumer. So that sort of value driven, um, manufacturing and design element was, came out of a lot of that work. And, and we spent a tremendous amount of time on the factory floor in the sample rooms working directly uh, for these products. And when we launched, we actually did so without wheeled luggage. It was an intentional move. We launched with, um, 14 different SKUs in four different colorways. It was not the conventional direct-to-consumer approach by any means. Uh, but for us, it was important to establish a range of product to um, work with our, our customer to, to help her understand how she could come to us to build a whole system for travel and how these items could be things that would live with her in her day-to-day -day life as opposed to being something that she just put underneath the bed when she got uh, or, you know, into a closet and, or in storage when she got back from a long-haul trip. Um, as we continued to produce Really, the impetus for us and, you know, moving, uh, our, our distribution into a more global, uh, excuse me, our manufacturing into a more global network came from this desire to advance our materials matrix and really push forward on sustainability. Italy is, you know, phenomenal for so much, uh, of the manufacturing universe and for production and design. And there's such strong skill sets there, but it does lag behind the technological innovations that were and have been occurring across, you know, much of South East Asia over the prior 20 years, and especially, I think, over the past 10. So 
as we went to make that move, again, it required, you know, an evaluation at a, a skew by skew level as to what we were going to, to transition and then really finding, you know, what is the right facility for us to be uh, manufacturing those goods in, right? And we really took the stance and con- as we continue to do of what's the best uh, you know, which is the best manufacturer for this particular type of good? And how do we then ensure that that's aligned with the manufacturer who can work with us the most on maximizing the elements of the product that are uh, from recycled sources or uh, sustainable sources? Uh, so that process saw us move the majority of our production into uh, a number of different areas within Southeast Asia. We have had, you know, a very international manufacturing matrix everywhere from Cambodia to uh, the Philippines to some production in Thailand. We manufacture in Taiwan. We manufacture some in China and we continue to produce uh, in Italy as well. Uh, it's important for us for special projects and, and also retaining the design and, and heritage of, of the brand. But in that transition, we were able to access new suppliers, new vendors who were able to work with these, you know, these recycled materials were able to work with us on specifically, um, creating our our own threads out of, for example, the post-consumer plastic water bottles, going through the dyeing process, going through the weaving process, and really perfecting these fabrics so that our customer was not having to make a sacrifice when it came to purchasing our product and, and could instead make a better choice for the earth while still making, you know, the best choice for uh, herself on when it comes to the design quality and, and value of the of the products. And so with that, with that diversification in uh, manufacturing, as well as, you know, the transition overall, um, I'm sure, you know, when the pandemic hit, it sounds like a lot of these hubs you've been uh, manufacturing in, especially Italy and uh, Asia, were also hard hit. Give us the uh, breakdown of when you saw the breakage happening. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I was recently going back through my my phone and, and my text history and preparing for uh, an offsite. We had a, a bit of a history of Paravel presentation. And I, I, I went back to look specifically during this time period and looking at the early days of 2020 and what the timeline was like, what were we doing? Everything was so fast moving and and novel during that period it, truly novel from even the virology standpoint that it, it's we often i i find it's easy to to view that whole period as a blur it gets a, a bit lost in in the details but in going back one thing that jumped out at me was the fact that which i think was very key to our ability to to survive and thrive during this unprecedented pandemic and travel shutdown and disruption in the supply chain environment was a very early recognition of what was happening in, in especially in, in Asia and a a close understanding of what the potential worst case implications would be right or how to game theory out the possibilities for disruption so for us you know we started talking about 
the, at that point, the novel coronavirus in early January of 2020. And it dominated every conversation we had from that point. You know, it still dominates most conversations, unfortunately. But in doing so, you know, we were, I think it it also was tremendously uh, of assistance that, or tremendously critical that my co-founder and I had spent so much time on the factory floors in sample rooms because we really understood the inputs into our products, right? And as we pushed further into sustainability, this insight and this clarity into our all elements of our supply chain had increased as we were, you know, really working hard to ensure that there was traceability and we had the right certifications and nominating suppliers. And so as a result, we were able to take a product like our, our aviator wheel luggage and, you know, by the end of January, have a list broken out in great detail of every component part that went into those products, exactly where they were being sourced from, who our suppliers were, what the lead times were, and to open direct lines with these, um, even the, you know, smallest vendors who were supplying, uh, you know, little elements of, uh, the internal housing for, or a ball bearing for the, the, our spinner wheels, right? And doing so, gave us a leg up where for all of our product that was in production, we really pushed to buy deeper into component parts where we felt that those suppliers were most at risk. They had smaller workforces. You know, they didn't really have the ability to, to house, uh, um, a lot of their team on site. They, um, just did not have the same access to support from, from the central government. And so, in making those decisions at that point, we were able to avoid a lot of the bottlenecks that uh, folks were experiencing in those regions um, during the early days. It, it, you know, that's not to say that we did not experience bottlenecks, right? There was still, of course, tremendous disruption. And we had situations where even though we had the all of the component goods stockpiled at our ultimate end manufacturer, there was a shutdown, right? And, or the particular factory ended up dealing with an outbreak of COVID. And those circumstances that affected everyone, um, of course, blew out our delivery timelines. We saw things that would, you know, Cambodia in particular was a, a, a difficult, um, Re, a, a difficult area for us for for a while in our supply chain as a result of the the shutdowns that were happening there uh and at the end of the day we just took those at face value we were communicative with our customers and we really looked to see you know to be agile and thinking about how we could market different products that we did have access to and 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 how to speak to our customer during that time so we saw it at that point, I don't think we had started to see it really on the freighting side of the equation. Interestingly enough, it was much more on the just, you know, sticks and bricks manufacturing and, and uh, component supplier uh, side. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Fast forward to mid-2021. Um, I, I think this is what you touched on, is that 
you know, you kind of stopped being able to outrun a lot of delays, right? Because even though manufacturing was sort of back on track, I think, as you mentioned, um, as time went on, vaccines rollouts, um, then you started to feel, you know, the actual port freight um, bottlenecks. So tell us a little bit about that and if it had any, you know, influence or actually pushed you to accelerate some of the plans that we're about to be talking about, which is, um, you know, cost-saving solutions or, uh, you know, it's actually, it's a, I'm calling them babushka luggages, but, you know, we'll get into that a little bit later. But yeah, tell us a little bit about the the port and um, I want you to touch on any reroutes that you may have also had to do on top of the manufacturing delays. Of course. So uh, in the first half of, of the year, we continued to use the general freighting strategy that we had employed as a company also focused on sustainability, uh, which was to send goods via ocean cargo and to do so in the, you know, easiest, what used to be the easiest and most obvious route. We would go from Southeast Asia, uh, we'd put things on containers, put them on the ship. They would go to LA or Long Beach. We entered into Long Beach, uh, usually more often than LA. Um, that time, period for us used to take 35 days, right? And we, what we saw was by the summer, the, the containers that we had loaded and, and directed to LA and Long Beach that were meant to serve as replenishment, particularly with our wheeled luggage for our peak summer travel period demand. Uh, and you know, this summer was quite active for travel, especially prior to the emergence of the Delta variant. We found ourselves in a position that a lot of folks still find themselves in, which is a, you know, we had absolutely no visibility into where our goods were, what the timeline would be, or how to advise customers about that situation, right? It was truly a, a moment in which, you know, we do and have done from the very beginning as a business, we uh, do quite a bit of, of pre-sales. Um, there's been forever just more demand than we've been able to forecast into since the beginning of the company. And we like to use pre-sales as a way to ensure that our customers can, you know, be able to feel secure that they're going to receive something when we restock. We don't want to restock and just sell out and whoever got their first got it the we are quite conservative when we're predicting the estimated shipping days for those items but this was there really was no solution for us here it just blew those estimates far out of the water so we were seeing you know up to 70 days uh for those uh for between the period in which the, that those left asia and those containers actually would be free and, and ready for us to pick up to transit to our dc so as we saw this happening, we were in the middle of arranging the freighting for all of our Q3 and, and importantly, our holiday deliveries. Um, and these are, you know, Q4 for us is by far our largest time period. It's generally over 40% of our revenue for the full year. It's pretty standard for the industry, but we're especially uh, uh, weighted there from a gifting perspective. And as we saw this unfurling, we realized it's only going to get worse, right? It became almost comical. You know, you had the whole issue with the Suez Canal, which then led to more container shortages. There were fires at the ports. There were COVID outbreaks that shut down ports in Asia. And the interdependence of, of the, uh, 
global cargo and freighting uh, system, I think, was being revealed in a, in a manner that had not ever been uh, quite so stark. And and so we realized, okay, we can't send things into LA and Long Beach anymore. We've got to make a move here because at that point in time, some folks were saying, oh, we think this is going to resolve over, you know, by Q3 or Q4. I just was not willing to take that bet. It felt more systemic to me and felt like there were too many underlying issues. So as we evaluated different routing options, the most obvious move would have been a shift to you know, a secondary port within the U.S. So call this Oakland instead of LA or Long Beach, maybe Seattle. Savannah became a very popular uh, port of call. And we thought through one step ahead and said, okay, everyone who is hedging their risk right now is going to move into these secondary ports. So we need to actually go one step beyond that and say, okay, what's a port that it's tertiary uh, and just not even in consideration for folks because it requires even uh, uh, large scale changes in right the the number of containers that you could get onto the ship right maybe it's a smaller port so it can't quite handle ships of the uh, size and scale that we see um, dominating the uh, ocean cargo world today so in doing that we we tested a, a couple of ports but it was the the tricky element of it was finding a port that had capacity and we felt like would keep capacity because of its you know uh, the tertiary nature of it while still having enough infrastructure both in the port itself and in the surrounding logistics environment for ground transport etc um to handle a large volume of goods, right? So it was this kind of Goldilocks moment of, of looking for that perfect port. And we ended up going outside the U.S. for it and identifying a, a port in, in Mexico that required a quite different freighting route. Uh, you know, we were no longer going out of our typical route in Asia. There was also a, a you know, there was an incremental stop for uh, the, the vessel um, where it was transloaded uh, in Korea, and then it continued on. And, and so on face value, it added complexity to our overarching cargo and freight movements. But in reality, because so much of the issue was just with straight up congestion, we saw you know, we, we went from these 70 day transits to back to, you know, 30, 35 and the, you know, our vessel would get to port and the next day the containers would be un uh, unloaded and we'd have things on and into our DC within, you know, two or three days from there. So that was a, a critical move for us um, as we were evaluating our process. Um, now, of course, as this has prolonged and continued. There are other best in class players who recognized, you know, okay, well, we went to Oatland and now Oatland's such a mess. This isn't enough and deployed teams to evaluate the same strategy that we did. So towards the end of our receiving period for our holiday goods, we did see that port go from having, you know, 40% spare capacity to being absolutely at capacity. And so we are experiencing now delays there as well, which means, you know, it's, it's, in this environment, and I think with the sheer volume of goods that were coming in for Q4 and remain coming in, it's 
you're, I don't think there's an answer right now to avoid delays full stop. Even the folks who were um, chartering their own cargo vessels were getting quarantined when they were going to go pick up things and experiencing crazy delays. And so for us, that now looks like uh, about a two-week delay. But still, in, in comparison to the uh, the timelines at, at the West Coast ports, it's, it's nothing. And we truly, had we not made that pivot when we did, which was much earlier than I think most people would realize you have to make decisions like that. Um, we wouldn't have had goods and, and inventory for the holidays. It just wouldn't have existed. Right. And just to clarify for uh, the listeners, you are actually guarding the name of the port. You're <laughs> a little bit of a competition going on where you don't want to actually yes. name it. Um, <laughs> so we will not I, you know, I won't push you further on that, but, um, you know, I'm sure people can do the math and figure it out on their own. Yes, um, exactly. And then that, yeah. <laughs> I gave you the country then, at least, right? So. <laughs> yeah, you got the country, the, the general. Somebody's out there with like a map of all the ports, yeah. <laughs> narrowing it down. At the same time, you're also transitioning right now, uh, into, cost saving, um, actual packing, right. Of the, the inventory itself. So walk us, I alluded this to this a little bit earlier, walk us through this because I know it's part of your actual sustainability mission, but in this case, it's also actually saving you, uh, uh saving you money on, uh, containers, which are very hard to come by. So, uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, this nesting, uh, process that you've come up with. Absolutely. So, for us, it, it this originated as a conversation around sustainability and emission savings, as you were, um, as you alluded to. And there are a number of elements that we actually have been working on that and had in progress prior to the total dissolution of the supply chain and freighting environment that have benefited us because the a lot of the movements you would make to minimize your carbon emissions happen to also be the same sort of movements that minimize your freighting time or the amount that you're freighting. So we recognized that we were in our normal environment for freighting, we were ending up shipping uh, a lot of air. Uh, when you think about suitcases, right there, you have this large external container effectively, and then inside of it is nothing. And that was being driven by the fact that we were manufacturing goods in such a multinational nature that, you know, it didn't make sense uh, in our original environment, optimizing for for logistics and speed to 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 market to have certain you know canvas and leather goods that we were manufacturing in and uh, excuse me canvas and vegan leather goods that we were manufacturing in Cambodia would need to be put on a container or transited to a, a nearby hub and taken. And then our goods that were being manufactured in Taiwan needed to go in a container and were taken from there. Different time periods, different production timelines, you know, different cycles. Uh, and as all of this was erupting, it occurred to us that, you know, we were seeing one, it was getting nearly impossible to acquire containers, let alone, you know, just pay for the exorbitant prices. But it was also 5Xing what we had seen historically for just the cost of the container alone. And we realized that what we could do was to 
take the fact that we were shipping luggage and use it to our advantage and start to uh, implement a consolidation program. So what this practically looked like, right? And, and our first stages and our first foray into this was just the very simple process of taking the, our, our larger suitcases and, uh, having to your reference of, you know, the Russian nesting Matryoshka dolls, right? So we would have our, our largest suitcase inside of that would be our second largest size. And then inside that is our international carry on size. So we sent a container to nested in that manner, but Again, we kept seeing prices increase and it again then occurred to me that, well, even in that sort of a setup, you know, there's a lot you can fit into our smallest size suitcase. That's one of the, the uh, benefits of it. That's something that we designed it for. Right. And at the same time, we have all of these goods, particularly in a, a series that we call our fold up collection or a negative nylon collection that are um, 100% RPET, uh, which is post consumer plastic water bottles, they're designed, you know, these are backpacks or uh, duffel bags that fold down into a uh, zip down into a, a pouch that's the size of a small paperback novel, right? And so what we ended up doing is we took our goods that were being produced in disparate regions and used local land transport to bring them to a central area for consolidation. And then at that area, we had the goods then nested inside of each other and really filled to the brim. And what this allowed us to do is that instead of, you know, looking at my freighting cost and the cost for that container and saying, okay, when I think about the impact of this on, on margin and what I have to do, do we pass this on? You know, we were really resistant to passing on these price increases to our customer. We, we believe so firmly and in, in value for our customer and didn't want to go through a series of price hikes. And so this gave us a way to say, Okay, if it used to be, you know, X dollars a unit for, for me to bring uh, an item in, now it's 5X. Well, if I can actually fit 20 additional units inside of that good, then I'm actually decreasing net net my overarching cost on a unit basis. And the, the, Great element here from a sustainability standpoint is that it means fewer containers. I can fit way more volume into the same one container that I used to be just uh, utilizing for um, one load from, of goods from one particular factory. It does create some delays. It requires a lot more uh, intensive demand planning forecasting coordination uh, among different production cycles, um, which then requires some pre-staging of materials. There's a, a whole host of, of ways we've worked to combat that. But we ultimately took the position that even if it creates some incremental delay in process, we could build that into our, our inventory forecasting. And this was something that was so effective and, and also so, and so, in line with our mission to for sustainability, that it was a a, a bit of a, a no brainer when we figured it out. Um, and the only other element I think that that was interesting here, as we were had been studying this consolidation process, is that previously it was quite. Um, cost ineffective for folks because there is, you know, whatever you nest on and, and consolidate on the, um, 
you know, export side, as you bring it into your distribution center, that all has to get unpacked, unnested, right? It's not uh, an easy process. It's a lot of uh, labor and man hours involved. And for us, it, because of the unique nature of our product and because of the just sheer insanity of the logistics and, and, and freighting cost at that point, the economics just hit a point where it, it made so much sense. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of the economics and the fact that it is effective uh, enough to just basically bake this into your business model, right? Uh, the nesting and continuing to actually develop products with this process in mind, uh, including, you know, shipping from one factory uh, on one side of Asia to another uh, before it gets to the U.S. Um, and still managing to offset some of the initial costs. Tell us a little bit about what, you know, the future of this program is. What are some of the, you know, product developments that you're already working on that you feel like you could fit inside the tiniest luggage, you know, maybe right. a, a, an airplane mask, perhaps. Uh, yeah. Is that being also influenced? Absolutely. I think there's a, a an element of innovation and and of spatial consideration that that conversation and this process has introduced and and made tangible for everyone on the team from our production and product development folks to our marketers to you know our finance and operation teams and the result of that you know oftentimes people don't think about what does this physically mean when you say okay I'm booking the ocean freight to move these goods right and and we would we also did a process of visualizing it for our our team internally so people could have a, a better understanding and actually having our facilities you know, take videos of what this looks like when you're loading into the container, what the what our ship looks like, and so forth. And that spatial consideration has led to a new element of ingenuity where there are products that we have been in development on for quite some time even where we reached a point of, okay, it's ready for production. But, uh, you know, for example, we have a certain type of, uh, uh, carrier that'll be, you know, kind of a personal item for folks on, on, uh, an airline that has a rigid construction and it would take up, you know, quite a large size, um, in a container if we had just said, great, let's produce it and ship it. And instead we took an opportunity to say, wait, we're again, shipping so much air here. And while we can certainly consolidate items into this, we can't consolidate items in when we then go to ship that item to the customer, right? If they haven't purchased those items. So there was an emissions issue for us that was, we're still shipping a lot of air, even with this consolidation program. So is there a way for us to consider product design in a manner that gives us, um, optimizes for uh you know the least volume possible to be taken up and the least air to be shipped as it's one of the most wasteful things and it's a bit of an you know it's not the i don't want to say it's the ikea approach because everybody's had <laughs> an experience building those for oh, that boy. furniture it's pretty impossible <laughs> but we have created and and with new products that we'll be taking to market and and uh, over the spring of next year we've created a, a simple we realized okay we could have one step for folks that would allow us to 
ship this flat packed as opposed to shipping this fully extended and rigid. And it's very simple. You know, we're, we're really fixated on that can't introduce so much additional complexity that it's like assembly required. Right. But what it does do is also has the added benefit of giving to our end consumer the ability to reverse that process and store these items when they're not using them in a manner that takes up a very, very small footprint. So that has been a, a big part of product design for us is understanding, you know, what are the small elements we can engineer in here? And we worked with an industrial designer on a, a lot of this. It's quite engineering heavy um, that, that can unlock this potential. And I, I'd say the other thing that we've been really working on is um, which has been, again, started from a sustainability standpoint and has been in the works for longer than the supply chain has been disrupted was, is the process of nearshoring. Um, and, and so we've been doing a lot of work to evaluate, you know, domestic production, to evaluate production in, in the Latin America, um, and to really understand, you know, how do we, how do we get out of this entire snafu in circumstances and, and leverage our jelly. Yeah. So actually on that topic of optimization, uh, I've been hearing a lot, you know, the made in the US or North America or, you know, just omnishore, I think is the jargon word for it, um, yeah. to just ma- bring everything closer to home so that you perhaps can even optimize the, you know, the consolidation even further. Uh, tell us a little bit about why you didn't you know, move in that into that direction to begin with. Um, I know it's not probably as simple as we're imagining. There's reasons that you do manufacture overseas. Uh, so tell us a little bit about, you know, what it would take to actually make travel products and luggage in the U.S. Absolutely. So we would have loved to have manufactured everything domestically from the start. It, it gives you such an incredible advantage, uh, especially when we were launching the business of, you know, you can get in a, a car or take a train and, and get to your manufacturing facility in you know, no more than a couple of hours in most cases, if you're located near your manufacturing hub, that's a huge advantage over needing to fly halfway around the world to see physically with your own eyes what's going on or what progress is, right? And you can have all of the representatives and, and um, overseas teams in the world, but it's still, as a, a co-founder and, and as a CEO, there's still something to me about being able to just trust but verify with my own eyes. That's so valuable. However, when we launched this business, manufacturing within this space in the US just did not exist. There were a handful of of very small uh, facilities in a couple of cities throughout the the US that could do very limited scale um, and very specific silhouette construction. For the type of work we were doing, it required machinery that uh, no one had invested in domestically in you know, 10 years. Um, and it required also in many cases a level of um, a level of expertise around construction and problem solving to make some, certain design elements work that just unfortunately has uh, 
disappeared in this country. When you look at the luggage space historically, you had Gurkha manufacturing in, in um, Newport and, and Connecticut for um, ages, but that factory shut, you know, 20 years before we uh, launched Paravel. And similarly, Vera Bradley used to do all of their cut and sew um, within the broader uh, Indiana region. And again, that facility had been closed, you know, 10, 15 years prior to uh, us entering the market. So this globalization had happened and there just was not an ability to to produce the types of goods that we were producing. Now, as we have continued to evolve, I think there has been a little bit more of that that's come back into the U.S. And so there are products that we now, with a, a more sophisticated sourcing and, and production and product development matrix, that we know we can manufacture, whether it's in L.A. or in the Brooklyn Navy Yards, and where we can look to source the the raw fabric and, and fibers for those products locally as well. So we're doing a bit of, of you know, design to manufacture, right? And, and thinking if we want something to be produced domestically, we know there's certain constraints. How do we work with them to ensure we're still creating a beautiful product for our customer? And I think there's an interesting thing happening as well in this, you know, omni-shoring, near-shoring and, and drive to domestic production where the use of recycled materials, particularly in our industry is still considered by and large to be um, worse than than using virgin materials, right? We, we would have arguments with, with suppliers and, and factories about wanting to use, for example, recycled polycarbonate instead of just virgin polycarbonate. It's cheaper to use virgin polycarbonate. It is stronger virgin polycarbonate, right? It requires a lot of work to uh, design the correct interior architecture so that it performs in the same manner. So as we've seen that process, there are materials that are increasingly difficult to access within a lot of Asia that we want to pursue from a sustainability standpoint, which drove us to begin this process within uh, a domestic sourcing and manufacturing market. So, you know, I think one of the most interesting one is aluminum, where it, it is nearly impossible to source 100% recycled aluminum in Asia. It's just not something they do that they understand they don't want to retrofit factories for it uh, but that is possible within the US there are different sources that use 100% recycled aluminum so we've been exploring in some of our uh, aluminum uh work streams what it looks like to to try to manufacture luggage again within the US domestically and have you know really soup to nuts the product be be both, uh, you know, 100% recycled and 100% domestic. I think that's a great place to end it, you know, on the domestic production side, a hopeful uh, or optimistic outlook. Thank you so much for joining us, Andy. This was really great to break down. Of course. Thanks so much for having me, Gabby. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Come back next week for more Chain Reactions. I'm Gabriela Barco with Modern Retail.